0: This is Nick Redding and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, the professor and the practitioner. Today, we're talking uh, about a couple different topics, and we're feeling rather summery, so we're going to be diving into summer vacation as well, I'm sure. Um, But I'm joined, as always, in this feature, a monthly feature of PreserveCast by Dr. Whitney Martinko, um, who is a professor at Villanova University and... Um, we're we're gonna jump into what's going on in the world of preservation right now. So Whitney, what's on your brain when it comes to preservation this month?
1: Well, thanks. it's good to be back. and I have to say I was eager to propose thinking about vacation because my mind is certainly on vacation here at the end of July. so, have been doing my due diligence on the historic hotels of America website, looking for places to stay and upcoming travel and just started thinking about all the new projects that have been funded, uh, in, in various tourist locations. I just read that the African-American, um, fund is funding a, uh, um, study or a, a project, I should say, on Martha's Vineyard about um, Black communities on Martha's Vineyard. So even more vacation uh, topics in that as well.
0: Yeah, it's perfect. It's it's perfect timing to, to and particularly after everyone's been kind of cooped up for over a year, at least to safely get back out there and go and see things. Um, Historic Hotels of America, you mentioned it. Are you... Well, here's here's a question and we we didn't we didn't rehearse this in uh, in the pre-show meeting, but um are you staying at one? I know you're going to go on sort of a little road trip across upstate New York and stuff like that. Are you planning on staying at one and or have you stayed at one in the past that you really like?
1: Yeah, I've stayed at several. I am going to stay in a couple heading up into yeah, upstate New York in the Finger Lakes and was actually realizing I don't know a lot about the history of that I guess it's an organization. I know they have partnerships with the National Trust um, and used to, at least with the Organization of American Historians, but um, I'm going to be staying at some new ones. One of my favorite ones that I've gone to on research trips a lot, actually, is the Hawthorne Hotel in Salem, Massachusetts. So great location. I've been there multiple times, uh, very reasonable prices and just great for all the research times that I've gone to Salem and actually on vacation as well.
0: So, what were you? And because people are going to be curious, what were you studying in Salem?
1: Well, I was doing research at the Peabody Essex Museum and the Phillips Library, which is, you know, a part of that, and was looking at actually the history of the Pickering House, which is owned by I think it's a it's a private family organization still. This house has been in the family since like the 17th century, um, and was doing some research into that history and more broadly historic preservation in Salem in the 19th century.
0: So so no, no witchcraft,
1: no witchcraft. No. No, In fact, I don't, I've never been to any of the witchcraft museums. I don't think in, in Salem, but I know that you can often tell the people who are heading to the witchcraft museums, I think. So it seems like a popular thing to do there.
0: A lot of black clothing. Yeah. A lot lot of uh, like pointy hats, things like that. Yeah. Um, what's funny you mentioned Salem because I'm actually, I'm headed to the North shore of Massachusetts myself. So you're going to upstate New York mm-hmm. uh, and I'm headed to the, to the North shore Gloucester Rockport area. Um, and are you just, staying
1: anywhere interesting there?
0: We're staying at a, at a, at an Airbnb. So we're, we're not staying at a, you know, cause sort of COVID and everything like that. So we're trying to kind of mm-hmm. be on our own kind of deal. But I will say in terms of historic hotels of America, I've stayed at a bunch, but I would say by far my favorite was actually the place that I went with my wife for our honeymoon, which is a cl- place called the Buccaneer. Um, in St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And it is like right out of like sort of a 1940s, 1950s Caribbean experience, like bright pink um, and just a really cool like historic hotel, historic resort. Not anything like, you know, the -the over-the-top sandals and things like that. Um, Just a very neat sort of 1940s, 50s um, vintage Caribbean experience. So can't say enough good about, um, that experience. And, and, uh, definitely was the reason that we went, we were like, well, there's a historic hotels of America on St. Croix. We should go there. So, um, yeah, I hadn't even, it's funny. I hadn't even been thinking about that as a, as a component of people traveling across the country, but it definitely is a, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a draw for people, um, you know, which which speaks to the value and the power of the work that we all do. And people love. Right. I mean,
1: I definitely have stayed places because of that sort of hoping to support historic preservation in, in various places I've traveled. But, you know, I really don't know anything about the history of it. I read that it was started in 1989. I kind of wondered if this was part of like the 1980s preservation as revitalization of main street tax credits. I really don't know the history of it. So it's, you know, maybe it's possible I'm buying into something that um, has a mixed history or something, but what, it seems what like a, a good pro Right. What doesn't, <laughs> yeah. um, but it seems like a, an interesting program that Maybe somebody has written a history about it or knows more about it. Maybe some of our listeners are more aware of how this program got started. But I mean, Whitney, um, it
0: it seems like it would be a good thing for you to write about because it (laughs) it would require you. I mean, I think just because you can't write about places you haven't been, right? So you would need to visit all of them. That's true. You need to get an NEH grant to visit every historic hotel of America. I mean, it would only be appropriate.
1: Agreed. Definitely need those travel <laughs> funds for that. So, and maybe, yeah, maybe a good topic out there. If a graduate student is doing research or looking for a research or article topic. It might've already been done. I'll have to yeah. do some research.
0: Or we'll have them on. Maybe, maybe we'll interview somebody from, from uh, historic hotels in a future preserve cast. So while we're on the topic of vacations and summer vacations and traveling in historic hotels and going across the country, um, uh, I wanted to mention, and I'm curious what you're listening to as you're traversing uh, the back roads of upstate New York, but I am currently addicted to, you know, we uh, oftentimes at the end of these episodes, we talk about what we're reading and I guess we can still do that, but I'm um, also maybe, maybe mid part, we can talk about what we're listening to. And as I think I mentioned to you, I'm, I'm addicted to this three part series, which starts with LBJ at war then LBJ, The Great Society, and then Nixon at War, with all of these amazing um, firsthand recordings of these individuals um, and makes for um, great uh, traveling uh, history background. So um, can't say enough good things about that podcast. I'm curious if you have any... uh, recommendations for things that you're listening to?
1: Yes, I do. The last time I took a road trip, which, you know, is at this point is two years ago, I think two summers ago, uh, two podcasts that I listened to that were great that I think would still be very timely. I can't remember if I've mentioned them on this podcast before, but um, This Land was a great podcast about um, the history of Cherokee country Cherokee territory um in in Oklahoma and was uh sort of a great history of the issues that led up to the McGirt decision that came down from the U.S. Supreme Court um gosh I guess at least a year ago at this point right. and the other podcast was White Lies and I believe it was produced by maybe an NPR or one of their affiliates and it was about the history um Of the murder of some civil rights um, students, uh, volunteers, activists in the South in the 1960s. And it was sort of an investigation of um, threads that, you know, the murders sort of hadn't been solved. There were a lot of uh, sort of remaining mysteries around them. And so the podcasters followed some of those roads, pulled those threads, whatever, uh, metaphor you want to use. But it was a podcast about that investigation.
0: Yeah. So we have some pretty nerdy listening. We have some (laughs) uh, history all the
1: time, right? History
0: all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's this. It's, it's just always fun when you stumble across a really good one, and you're like, "Wow, this is awesome!" I feel like I have to share this, and so I, I yeah. blew through all of that. I'm like, I want to listen again. Right? You know, when a new episode
1: comes out, I'm like all excited. Um, yeah. Are there any? I mean, obviously, this is a preservation podcast, but I'm. Yeah. Are there any series or any sort of preservation-related podcasts that are focused on? on place or on restoration or sort of like a particular I kind of I love the sort of detective angle to podcasts, sort of like the mystery to solve or the yeah. the sort of un unplumbed question. So there's I don't there's know certainly of any a
0: handful of other preservation podcasts. The National Trust put together a list at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, but In terms of sort of like a deep dive like that with primary sources or primary audio, which is kind of what you need for a Mm -hmm. podcast, which is what makes LBJ and Nixon so great because they're just this treasure trove of recording every – they're so vain and so full of themselves that they recorded every phone call and every conversation in the Oval Office that they had. So in a really unique way, you can go back and listen to these things. Um, But yeah, I I think that would be a great – you know, a great little mini series to do on a, on a specific place. Maybe the uh, the professor and the practitioner will uh, combine to, to work on one at some point
1: in the that future. Would that would great. be great. Yeah. Oh, I want to I want to put in one more plug. I just thought sure. of a great podcast episode done by the Science History Institute here in Philadelphia. They had an episode about basically the history of water treatment. Here in Philadelphia, and so it was. It's a lot about the built environment. So their podcast series, I believe, is called Distillations. An episode about the Fairmount Waterworks and really the whole history of the water system here in Philadelphia—it goes in th- through the 19th century and into the 20th and 21st—is a really great episode for built environment folks.
0: Well, we we have come up with I think the nerdiest collection yeah. <laughs> of podcasts from water treatment to LBJ um, and, and beyond there. So, um, okay. So it's interesting. We were talking, you were just talking about like, Oh, it'd be great to have something that dives into the history of a place and everything like that. And in depth and what places are more, more notorious, more well known than our world heritage sites. Right. And, uh, in the news this month is the fact that Liverpool, just got its World Heritage Site status revoked, which is interesting from the from the advocacy practitioner side, something we – from time to time you'll hear advocates do. I remember they did this in Savannah. Is they said, you know, if you're not careful, you're going to lose your National Historic Landmark status. Now, whether or not that actually can happen and if it were to happen, I mean it's um, – it's a long road, but I've I've definitely been in a meeting where I said, well, if you're not careful, you might lose your national register district or something like that. Well, sure hate- enough, in Liverpool, this happened. Um, and you and I took a look at some of these pictures of what happened down at the docks of Liverpool, and it's pretty wild. Now, n- neither of us are, are Liverpudlian experts, so we can't speak with – Um, great specificity to what happened there, but you were saying is interesting, sort of a parallel to your, your current city of Philadelphia. And so for people who aren't familiar, what's the preservation scene looking like in Philadelphia these days in terms of preservation of, of resources?
1: Yeah. I mean, you're right that my first reaction was, oh, this is what preservationists here in Philadelphia keep saying is going to happen in Philadelphia if, the demolition crisis continues here in Philadelphia, right? Where we're seeing 19th century, 20th century buildings demolished at huge rates, greatly spurred by a tax abatement that really encourages new development over preservation or adaptive reuse.
0: How does it do that?
1: So it's a 10 year tax abatement. So, um, the, you know, you, it, it Continues with the property, right? So a ten-year tax abatement on new construction. That um, you know, there's there's not the same incentive, right? There's not a, a tax abatement given in the same way for a, adaptive reuse or for preservation. So it's really often cheaper. So it's
0: totally focused on
1: new development, yeah, right? And in some ways, people, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but I've heard you know, a lot of people say that this was great in, you know a decade ago or even longer, right. When Philadelphia was really trying to cultivate any, any new development, right. Reinvestment in the city. And, you know, I think a lot of people believe it's really, you know, Philadelphia has grown. Um, it's attractive to many people to, you know, do business, to live in. Um, and so there's a real push to say, okay, well, how can we incentivize, restoration, adaptive reuse, and not just teardowns, right? So we're seeing teardowns happening of interesting, of uh, solid buildings from a lot of 19th century industrial era heritage is being lost. And, you know, to take this back to the world heritage status, you know, Philadelphia was granted world heritage city status, I believe in 2014, 2015, somewhere around there. I believe it's the first city in the United States to sort of have that status, right? It had been offered to other cities, but no other city had sort of uh, said, yes, we want to pay the money that it takes to to join the status. But of course, that really privileges Independence Hall, right? As sort of the UNESCO World Heritage Site. And so many people think of when they think of Philadelphia, right? And and tourism, since we're talking about summer vacation, I think a lot of people, when they think history and tourism in Philadelphia, they think Independence Hall, they think Liberty Bell, they think Elfrith's Alley, that is sort of 18th century street that is maintained north of Independence Hall. Uh, in old city. And so, you know, preservationists are really saying, look, this is a world heritage city that has amazing 19th century history, right? Amazing mid-century modern 20th century history. And that should be a part of the vision for preservation of history uh, of the historic built environment here in Philadelphia. It's just
0: such like a, it requires such a mental shift for a lot of people. I mean, it's funny. I think a lot of people who are very well-meaning, like, when they bump into me and they're like, oh, you do preservation, yeah. Oh, well, I went to this mansion. Would, you know, do you, do you guys work on that? Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, maybe, like, 60 years ago we did. You know, I don't spend a lot of time my time on that now. I mean, now it's really focusing on, I mean, like, for us, like, trying to connect preservation to place and to community and, and make people's lives and communities better by utilizing historic places, right? And more often than not, that involves vernacular or common places or warehouses and and things that have uh, the look and feel and rhythm that makes, you know, cities and communities vibrant. Um, but it doesn't always rely on super fancy, beautiful places. But I think the rub is that even elected officials are like, well, this is just a warehouse, right? Like you we have we have the Liberty Bell, we have Independence Hall. What do you, what do you need here? And so I think the challenge too is that the preservation community has moved. And I think we should be proud of that. Like there, we're, you know, not everything is perfect by far, but at least in 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 spirit, you know, we're headed in a different direction. I think vast, you know, the vast number of organizations are doing that but the rest of the public hasn't come along with us, you know? And I wonder, speaking about thinking of Philadelphia, we have the 250th anniversary of American independence coming up in 2026. Right. And is that not, and I hope it is, an opportunity to kind of reframe what preservation is? Because if you think of 1976, that set the agenda for the next generation. We're kind of still living out the legacy and the, you know, what, we considered preservation in 1976. And so is 2026 an opportunity to reset? I certainly hope hope so. so, you know? Yeah.
1: And even thinking back to 1976 as a real moment of activism, hopefully we can continue that legacy into 2026 as well, right? I mean, the sort of national bicentennial celebration here in Philadelphia, I think had less energy than did the sort of neighborhood activists, right? Saying, making demands on city government, on national government. I mean, Frank Rizzo was sort of calling in the National Guard for the main bicentennial, right? And there was, there's a lot of energy pushing back against that, focusing on claims for women's rights, for civil rights, for African-Americans, for um, LGBTQ rights, right? So uh, a lot of still anti-war protests happening as well. So hopefully some of that will, uh, bubble up around 2026 as well, but yeah. And I think with the world heritage city status, the one reason it came to mind is because, you know, in responding to all these demolitions of buildings that are happening, a lot of preservationists use the hashtag world heritage city sort of subversively, right? So we'll say like, oh, cool, here's another building that's being demolished, hashtag World Heritage City, right? So I think we're sort of seeing that even, this this, the fact that Philadelphia is a World Heritage City, not just as sort of using it as a threat, like, oh, this is gonna get taken away, but but using that status to really try to show how absurd it is that the city um, says it's proud of this claim and yet doesn't do... Anything really to protect uh, the massive wave of demolitions that continues.
0: Yeah, and even when you think about it, like if you just, I mean, I remember watching a documentary on New York at one point, and the idea that New York is a historic city, sometimes it's hard for people to swallow, even though it's, you know, it's, it has this long history. It just seems like a place that's always reinventing itself and always changing. And there's obviously a ton of historic resources there, but it doesn't feel or it doesn't have that sense of being historic. Like, even just the word Philadelphia does, right? Like Philadelphia just seems like it oozes history. And so I think for a lot of people around the country, they're like, of course they would be protecting their history. Um, and, you know, it's it's unfortunate to see that. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's part and parcel of what's happening everywhere. And I, I think it requires, I mean, the answer to it is political engagement, right? Absolutely. Um, and political politi- funding. <laughs> yeah, unless the politicians are on your side, unless you have you know, a preservation ethos in your elected officials, then, you know, it's just good intentions. You know, I worked for somebody who said they, I worked in land preservation at the time and they said, um, land preservation without money is just good intentions Yep. and preservation without political engagement is just good intentions.
1: Right. Right. You need somebody advocating for that line item on the budget, right. For the city, for the historical commission, for, um, people who are going to engage local constituents and communities who want to protect local landmarks right that yeah. who are going to pay to write nominations who are going to pay for a citywide survey so yeah you're right sort of politics and 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 funding go hand in hand and are necessary as well as legislation right that doesn't encourage demolition uh and maybe that instead incentivizes preservation for the you know for the historic aspect um that many of us appreciate but I think even more importantly for the sustainability aspect. I mean how much material is going into the landfills in places like Philadelphia and other cities that don't have a strong support for preservation um in this moment of of climate change, we're just filling Filling dumpsters and landfills with perfectly good building materials, um, you know, even as I'm sure some are salvaged and, and resold and reused. But there's no, no legislation, not enough, not
0: enough, not enough. And meanwhile, uh, across the state in Pittsburgh, they have a deconstruction ordinance now that basically yes. disincentivizes demolition and says you got to if you're go- if you have to demolish, you got to deconstruct. Um, which raises the cost of demolition. So it changes the economics on that side. And then if you actually are going to go down the road of demolition, then you have to deconstruct and it gives an opportunity, creates jobs to take that thing apart. And then it creates materials to use, which is also interesting too. everybody for a while there. And then prices have started coming down a little bit, but the price of wood was astronomically high for a while. And it just sort of boggled my mind because you drive around here in Maryland and you see people, tearing apart buildings and throwing out wood and then like that same person complaining like oh, how much is a two by four mm-hmm. like you just threw one out you yeah. know so um sometimes we we make odd decisions and, and preservationists I, I i guess in a sense or, um in a, in a unique position to to, to to notice those decisions so we were talking about like um political engagement and mm-hmm. how that's so important One area where I'm seeing it, and I think it's like a positive to focus on, is on this issue of African-American cemeteries. I feel like more and more we're seeing a lot of effort and movement and interest in the idea of somehow investing and protecting African-American cemeteries. I don't know if you're seeing that at all or um, the sort of why we're where we are. I mean, you're sort of more on the understanding the, the precedent and the history of all of this. Why is it that up until this point, it's been so hard to protect cemeteries? What is our hangup with cemeteries?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think there have been a lot of good sort of preservation projects, uh, funded projects, and also a lot of good popular media. I don't know if you saw that article. It was actually a video article in the New York Times probably about a month ago uh, about in, uh, Black cemeteries in Louisiana. Hmm. I mean that are being threatened by basically petroleum factories. Um, So I think that we, you know, there's just been a lot of demographic changes. There's been a lot of, um, you know, a lack of funds as we're talking about, right. for, For preservation of places. I think that a lot of black communities are well aware of, you know, where particular cemeteries are right. But having sort of the time and the resources to set those aside, right. To clear undergrowth, to restore headstones um, if necessary. It, again, it takes time and resources. Um, It takes people on the ground. You know, a lot of these cemeteries are rural cemeteries where, um, you know, they Many of the cemeteries in that Louisiana story, you know, they're on private land. They're on former land of former plantations, right? That so they're on private land. The access has not been guaranteed. That there are no public access roads, right? That descendants don't own that space. So, I think there have been a lot of challenges uh, over the years.
0: Yeah, and there's a national effort afoot to try and create an African American burial cemetery program. Um, Virginia has a program. Maryland is researching a program right now. Um, at our organization, Preservation Maryland, we, we just applied for funding to try and create, um, to fund an AmeriCorps position that would lead cemetery, um, preservation and maintenance workshops around the state and try and engage, um, youth groups in that work, um, to try and create sort of a culture of stewardship within, you Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and Future Farmers of America and 4-H and things like that and try and get them to adopt rural historic cemeteries, whether they be African-American or not, um, and try and give them the basics and the safe way of maintaining a cemetery and, you know, using a soft brush and D2 and all those mm-hmm. sorts of things. Um, so I think that there's more and more around that. I remember hearing from John Sprinkle, who we interviewed in a previous um preserve cast who's a historian at the national park service and he knows probably he's forgotten more about the national register and the history of the national register than anyone else knows um but i i know that the idea whether or not cemeteries would be eligible and for the conclusion of the national register was a big debate early on and the legacy of them basically saying no unless there was some Big other circumstance um, is that they've been largely neglected and overlooked by the preservation community because it's like, well, they're not eligible for the National Register. Um, So most SHPO offices, for example, won't even list them. So we don't know where they are. Right. Um, So it's it's this strange legacy of how policy directly impacts the landscape um, and you see it play out with cemeteries because of the way the national register, I think every episode we have to find a way to knock the national register. So <laughs> no. if people are looking for it, that's this moment.
1: No. Um, I, yeah. And I think I was trying to think, you know, what groups have been most engaged other than, you know, certainly, um, individuals or, or families. And I was thinking about genealogists and I wonder, mm-hmm. you know, so many genealogists over the decades have transcribed headstones and have, you know, cleared cemeteries. And I wonder that, you know, in the absence of preservationists sort of taking that on, right. To say that cemeteries are something that should be listed, you know, has that engagement really fallen to people who have different interests in doing history, right. Sort of genealogy, family, family preservation. Um, I don't know. Yeah. And I mean, I am, I, I do think we're in a moment, right. Of, of, Seeing more attention given to cemeteries, and I think on a state level, um, certainly that is the case. Veterans groups, I know, are also often able to um, get institutional resources on board for restoration or preservation of cemeteries. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you you know of like quite a few good programs in rural areas that have had some success.
0: Yeah, I, I think that there's just a lot more. It just seems like in the past six to 12 months, there's been a lot more emphasis and focus put on it. And, and I think it's part of this broader interest in equity and inclusion within the preservation community. And I think it's just great to see, you know, because disproportionately African-American resources have been lost. There's a lot of, it's, it's hard in some cases to find the physical place. You know, sometimes those buildings have been lost or they've been demolished. Um, and cemeteries, and for one reason or another, oftentimes survive. They may not be in great shape, but they're still normally there. Um, mm-hmm. So it's another great way to, to physically connect African-American history to sort of a rooted place in the landscape that people can return to. So um, it's critically important to get right, and, and I'm, I'm glad to see that there's focus on it. It's interesting. One thing that you said w- w- was another topic I think we both wanted to talk about, which is you were saying who can practice history and mm-hmm. who practices history, right? So you were talking about genealogists. And of course, there's preservationists and there's public historians, a variety of different people who practice history, PhDs. Um, And so there's been some questions. I saw um, some folks kind of debating this about preservation and there's broader questions about, you know, master's degrees and professional degrees and things like that. But um, do you need a master's to practice preservation? Should nonprofits and SHPO's, um, given the overwhelming cost of going and getting a master's, should that be a barrier to entry? Um, and I, I'm curious, you know, you're, you know, you work in, in, in the, uh, in the academy, right? And so, um, you know, part of your, you know, livelihood is based on people doing this. So I'm curious, what do you think about that? And obviously you went and, you know, have extensive schooling and went and got your PhD, um, where do you fall on this? I'm curious, having, you know, now understanding that you've seen all sides of it, you know?
1: Right. Yeah. I have a PhD. I am a professor. At the same time, I teach, it, I teach public history, right? So I teach a lot of students who want to be historians who are working in museums or archives or preservation or community organizing, um, nonprofit management. And so they're coming to our program to, to get a master's degree. And part of the reason this this is on my list uh, of things to talk about, right, is there have been a, a lot of news coverage of predatory master's programs that are... Are trying to sell you something different from what you applied for, right? So, okay, we can't offer you a spot in our PhD program, but you can enroll in this one-year master's degree that's going to cost you $60,000. So, and
0: just to be clear, Villanova doesn't do that. No,
1: no we, <laughs> we have a funded master's program uh, and uh, we don't have a PhD program. So our graduate students are master's students. But, you know, I think that one thing I often talk to my students about is just what is your goal? right? Because if you think that going to graduate school and getting a degree is somehow going to immediately get you your dream job, right? In a way that you couldn't without your your master's degree, that's probably not how it's going to go, right? I Master's degrees can be really wonderful things, right? It's time to read. It's time to write. um, It's time to learn from a lot of folks, your colleagues, professors, um, people you intern with. Right. So obviously I think it's important because I wouldn't be teaching if, if I didn't, on the other hand, not everyone needs a master's degree to do what they want to do. Right. Mm -hmm. So does it sound like a good idea to read and think and write, um, in the case of a history program? Great. Right. Um, do it. I think it's valuable. But if you're doing it because you think you have to do that to do a certain type of work, I would say, you know, think first if can you get experience, right? Because you can't a master's degree doesn't stand in for an experience. And experience doesn't always stand in for a master's degree, right? There are jobs that I think require that that graduate education.
0: And it depends on the type of employer too, right? I mean, I, I definitely went the experience route. Um, and came right out of my undergrad and actually was fortunate in that I was able to do a full time, like 40 hour a week internship my last semester of school, which then immediately kept, you know, they were like, Oh, this worked out. And so then I went and worked for them for six years. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me, it was just, you know, experience. And of course I came out right as the great recession was happening and I had a job and I was like. I'm not leaving this. I'm holding no. to dear life <laughs> for this thing. And, um, you know, I saw a lot of my peers who went on to go get their master's and really struggled to find a job. Meanwhile, I was racking up experience and doing things and running advocacy campaigns and doing GIS and applying for grants and things like that. So, I mean, it worked for me. And that's not to say that it would work for everyone. But right. I, I do. I think one of the most important things you can do in undergrad to kind of figure that out for yourself is to do a really good professional internship and kind of get a sense for, okay, what would it take for me to do this kind of job? What, what, you know, what are employers looking for? How do I, how do I speak that language with employers? You know, as someone who hires, and maybe it maybe it's my bias, and we're all biased in some ways, um, but I definitely look for experience. Like that's where I'm like, okay, can they do the job? Can they do this? Can they do that? Because hiring somebody who's gone undergrad to master's and never had a job, it's sort of like you're taking a big leap, right? Because mm-hmm. they're there's clearly they're smart and they've learned a lot of things, but how do they handle themselves in the business world? How do they conduct themselves via email and all those sorts of things? You know, how do they schedule themselves and host meetings and all that kind of thing? Because those are some learned behaviors on the job. And so I think that that internship experience is super important. And I know that you guys really prioritize that at Villanova kind of getting out there particularly in public history and doing the work to see if you right. like it and what aspect of it you do like. So that I think has to be emphasized. And I think that that at least helps address some of it. And then on the other side of it is I think there's sometimes, and I've heard this in the preservation community, perhaps do we have an overprofessionalization of the work that we do? Like right. in order to be a nonprofit advocate, do you have to know the historiography of preservation? It can be helpful to have that on staff um, but does everyone need to know that? and does that always help? You know, I don't know. and and right now, I have an amazing tradesperson on staff who's leading our trades efforts um, and they have a very different background and, and I, I love having that diversity of experience and background, somebody who's worked with their hands but who also can handle that piece. So um, you know, I, I, I think you want that sort of diversity of backgrounds and experiences. Um, and nonprofits have an easier time of doing that than say like a Shippo, which is kind of rigorously, you know, trying to put themselves into some type of buckets that state government says, well, you know, in order to do this, you need to have a master's degree.
1: Right. And I think that one way that I encourage my students to think about their goals and how they're going to translate a master's degree into getting to their goals, right, is to encourage them to think about their graduate education as experience, right? So mm-hmm. what did you, I think a lot of students might want to say like, okay, like I got my master's degree as if that is self-evident to say like, okay, check, right? Like that's a qualification, which in some cases, as you point out, it is, right? If you're trying to work for a SHPO or um, for some some job that really requires a master's degree, but that's not... It doesn't mean anything if you can't explain, well, what did you learn? What experiences do you have? Like, what are you taking away from your graduate education that is going to help you in this job, right? So to say, yeah, I spent two years um, really improving my writing because I would really love to work in a place where I get to um, write, you know, do development work, right? And appeal to donors or I, you know, spent Two years really learning the history of the early United States because I really want to work in a museum where I draw on that really in depth knowledge of the Revolutionary Era to be a public educator, right? So it's like you can take so many different things out of a graduate education or a job or an internship, but the key is being able to narrate what you learned and how that prepares you to do something that you want to do
0: yeah right? I like that a lot I think that's really smart I think I, I like the word narrate too it's sort of like explaining okay so you have the masters but what does that mean um and even having a skill set that sets you apart too like like you say, like, you know, I volunteered and did some fundraising, and so I understand that world. Like That sets you apart. Even if, like I, I always say, I learned this at the first organization I worked at, is like, we're all fundraisers. It doesn't matter what job you do in the organization, we're yes. all fundraisers, right? <laughs> yep. If it's a nonprofit, that is. Mm-hmm. Um, because we need to show goodwill above all to our donors, and the work that we do reflects our reflects us to donors and opens us up for more donations, which keeps us afloat and pays your salary. Um, so having somebody who gets that or somebody who comes in and says, you know, I'm really good at GIS, or we hired mm-hmm. somebody for a position that wasn't really connected to it. And they said, well, I'm, I'm actually, I can, I can do, um, you know, virtual reality, um, you know, if, if that would be helpful. And it was like, Yes, that would be quite helpful. Right. And so it was just sort of like a a little add on. So I think, you know, differentiating yourself and and being able to narrate, like you said, I think is just it's it's critical. And I think we need to have those conversations, um, particularly as you know, and I don't think it's fair for people to completely knock the four year and the, you know, graduate degree. There's people who need to go do that. And then there's people who you know, obviously, from our perspective, if we need to go to trade school because we need people who can actually fix buildings. Of course, um, but I think being able to have those conversations is is super important, and I'm I'm uh, I'm glad that PreserveCast is part of that conversation now.
1: Right, and that and knowing that there's no one right path. Right, what I see in students a lot, I think, is they're trying to decide. Okay, I want to have a certain job or a goal, and I. I need to know what's the right thing. What are the right classes? What are the right internships? But in fact, you're like, there is no one right path. You just need to be able to sort of, again, narrate it or say, why did you do this? And how is it going to help you get to where you want to go?
0: Yeah. I feel like you just dropped some like serious, um, like knowledge on everyone just for life too, right? There's no one right path.
1: There is no one right path.
0: (laughs) That, 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 That seems like a mantra. Like that's something you have to tell yourself when you're meditating. Agreed. Um, All right. So before we wrap this episode, um, what are we reading? You want to go first?
1: Yes. Well, I think my recommendation will be, you know, based on our discussion of African-American cemeteries. There's a new book out by Ryan K. Smith. He is a historian at Virginia Commonwealth University. And I believe it's called Death and Rebirth in a set Southern City. It's a history of cemeteries in Richmond, Virginia. Hmm.
0: It's like a perfect like that's that's a perfect recommendation. It seems like also we should get him on in the interview. Huh?
1: Agreed. Agreed.
0: Um well I am reading like I I love to like um not narrate, that was the word of the day, but curate my reading to what I'm doing sort of in my life at that moment. Mm-hmm. So for summer reading, vacation prep for vacation, I am um, reading a history of motif number one. It's called In Search of Motif Number One, The History of a Fish Shack. And motif number one is perhaps arguably one of the most painted buildings in America. It's this little fish shack on the spit of land in Rockport, Massachusetts, which is where we'll be staying. And I've looked at it a bajillion times, and I was like, beyond the little tiny wayside with three sentences of text, I'd like to know more about that building. So I am reading a hyper-focused study on motif number one, which I will then get to go and see and uh, feel like I know a little bit more about um, that beautiful building. So... Um, and i
1: learned that this building even exists from your recommendation so I haven't been up to rockport i have to make it up uh, my next time i've been to gloucester but not quite up to rockport
0: yeah i've sold it for you maybe we'll make it the uh, put put it in the show notes a little little picture motif number 1 well as always this is so much fun good to get chatting. If people listening have questions for an upcoming, um, episode of this, we do these monthly, um, with Dr. Martinko. Um, and we would love to hear from you. Um, give us a five-star review and, um, share this. Uh, we would love people to hear more about this and we're growing it, um, every month getting tons of downloads now. And, um, we uh, want you to share it with your friends. So um, I guess we'll come back in uh, back to school season um, right before uh, classes begin. Maybe classes will have begun by then, but we'll be back in August um, on the professor and the practitioner, a part of PreserveCast.
1: Enjoy your vacations, everyone.
0: Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening, and keep on preserving.